It is about some visions that God gave to us. As we come to Revelation chapter 1, we'll be in Revelation uh, for the next few weeks as we begin a new sermon series today. And today what I want us to see from Revelation chapter 1 is first John's situation, so the context for this book. Second, I want us to see John's description as he describes what God showed him in heaven. And third, I want us to see John's reaction. So let's look at those three things together. John's situation, John's description, and John's reaction. First, John's situation. You see it there in Revelation chapter 1 in verses 9 through 11. John writes, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. John's situation as he writes these words is a situation of great persecution. Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire beginning as far back as the year 62 AD under the Emperor Nero. Under the next emperor, things got worse and not better. During that period of the 60s AD, both the Apostles Paul and the Apostle Peter were both executed by the Roman state for their profession of faith that Christ is Lord. By 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and things kept getting worse. What had been sporadic and isolated to Rome became more systematic and widespread throughout the Roman Empire. As we get to the 90s AD, when this was written, John, you see, he says there, he's your brother in the tribulation, so he's referring to this persecution, and he says that he's on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see, the Roman authorities had sent John into exile for preaching God's word. John had been a pastor at the church in Ephesus, and when he was sent into exile, Timothy had taken over the pastorate of that church. Timothy, who had been a companion of Paul and, and had learned from the Apostle John. And history tells us that about the time this was written, Timothy, who was the pastor of that church in Ephesus, one of the, the churches that was receiving this letter, Timothy, was preaching the gospel, was proclaiming God's word to a procession of folks who were worshiping the pagan goddess Diana. And these folks were angered by what they heard, and so they took Timothy and they dragged him through the streets out of the city and stoned him. And so the context of this book is a context of great persecution of Christians as the Roman Empire was persecuting the church. Now, that's the setting in which this book is written. And it's important that we understand the setting I want you to imagine being in one of these churches at this time. Imagine receiving this letter in that context. Christians are being persecuted and killed. You're probably meeting in secret, not with the doors open for ventilation like we're doing today. 
Our leaders have been killed. Paul, Peter, Timothy, John was arrested and exiled. The fear has to be that the very existence of the Christian church is in doubt. That the church could be exterminated by the Roman Empire. We've been taught to say Jesus is Lord, but as we look around, it sure doesn't seem like it to these folks in the first century. It may seem to them that Caesar is Lord. They had to be asking, where is Jesus in all this persecution? Where is Jesus as his followers are being persecuted? You know, we ask questions like that too, don't we? In a year like 2020, when we face a global pandemic, when we see injustice, when we see protests turn violent and destructive, in the midst of an election year which seems to be tearing our country apart, individually as we face problems at our job, Problems in our home and our marriages, problems in relationships, problems with our children. As we worry about our financial situation or our health, we too ask the question, where is Jesus in all of this? John had to be asking that question. Perhaps he was praying for that church in Ephesus where he had been the pastor and he's crying out to the Lord. And how does Jesus respond to people who ask that question? Where is Jesus now? How does Jesus respond to that? Well, we're going to see here in the text that Jesus responds by pulling back the curtain with this book of Revelation. Jesus responds by unveiling the unseen reality of the present moment. And this image that Jesus gives to John and instructs him to give to the church is a vision of reality at the present time. These images help us to see the unseen realities of the present moment. Now, why would God do that? People often ask, why did God write this book of Revelation with these crazy pictures and images in it? Here's the reason why. You see, if we can be aware of the unseen realities of the present moment, then we can have the courage to overcome all we face and follow Jesus above all. To the people who first received this letter, to all outward appearances, the situation they faced looked hopeless. But it is only when we see Jesus for who he really is that we can overcome all we face and endure in our faith. Let me just stop there for a moment. I don't know what you think when you hear that. Some who are believers may say, well, gosh, that's, you're right. I need to focus on Jesus and see him. That's going to help me. For others of us, we are skeptical. We say, of course, that's what you're going to say. You're a preacher, right? That's your job as you preach God's word. Yes, that is my job. That is my calling to preach the word. But I want you to think about this. Think about the power that is here. If you have trouble believing that seeing Jesus is the solution to our problems, then think about the history that this was written into. Think of John's situation. You see, when Revelation was written, the Roman Empire was crushing the Christian church to the extent that the church was in danger of being totally crushed out of existence. And at that time, when these folks received this letter, 
Who would have believed that within a couple of hundred years, the Roman Empire does not take over Christianity, but Christianity takes over the Roman Empire? Folks in this church may have trouble believing that within a few hundred years, with the, the Emperor Constantine, that even the Emperor of Rome would profess to be a Christian. And that within two millennia, the image that they are presented with of the risen Christ would start a movement that would become the largest religion on the face of the earth with over two billion people making the confession that Jesus is Lord. So before you discount this image, before you think... <laughs> He's just a preacher. Of course he's going to say Jesus is against him. Before you think that, then keep in mind that historically, empirically, this image that was given to the church sustained a small minority that was being snuffed out in the Roman Empire to the extent that they took over the empire and have started a movement that's the largest movement on the face of the earth. So let's come to this description with some respect and to see it in light of John's situation and in light of what we know now. Because there is great power here to sustain the people of God and to change the place where we live. So let's come. Let's look at John's description together. We're going to see it here in verses 12 through 16. But as we come to it, let me give you one disclaimer before I read the description. Okay? I don't want you to be alarmed when he describes what Jesus looks like. All right? And here's why I don't want you to be alarmed. Because this description, these symbols that John sees, they are not really a description of what Jesus looks like. But it's a description of what Jesus is like. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that this image is not given as a portrait. He's not painting a portrait of what Jesus actually looks like. But he is using these images to teach us what Jesus is like. See, Jesus is revealing himself here in prophetic symbolism. It's not a literal, physical description of the resurrected body of Christ as he now sits at the right hand of God in heaven. So, for instance, we're not to think that Jesus now has a double-edged sword in the place of a tongue, okay? It's just telling us something about Jesus when he's pictured in this way. So let's dig in. Let's look at these symbols that reveal not what Jesus looks like, but what Jesus is like. John describes what he saw, verses 12 through 16. John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Let's unpack this description that John gives us. In verse 13, he says that he saw one like a son of man. Now, you need to understand that that is a very particular phrase that the original audience would be familiar with because it comes from Daniel chapter 7. In the context of, of Daniel's book, Daniel had visions just like John did. And Daniel had these visions of several kingdoms which would rise and fall, but one 
like the Son of Man, would be the one to whom all the kingdoms of the earth would be given. That he is the central figure in all of history, and he's the one that God would give all the kingdoms of the world. Let's just look at it in Daniel chapter 7. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen for you. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now remember, these folks have been discipled by the ones who literally saw Jesus ascend into heaven, John right? Peter, these folks. And they saw Jesus go into heaven in the clouds. Then they're told that Jesus is the one like a son of man who ascended in the clouds into the presence of God, into the presence of the ancient of days, and was given authority over all the kingdoms, over all nations on this earth. And so the conclusion is, yes, the, the Roman Empire is persecuting you, but you need to understand that Jesus now has authority over the kingdoms of this world. So first century church, nothing is going to happen to you outside of what Jesus allows to happen to you. And so this would provide great comfort to those people in the first century who are being persecuted by the Roman Empire, who are worried about the state. But I want you to know that it should bring great comfort to those of us in the 21st century as well. Because it says Jesus has an everlasting kingdom, that his dominion never ends. The promise is true for us as well, that nothing will happen to us outside of what Jesus allows to happen for us. And that is a really important thing. Because as we live, particularly here at this point in time, I am very concerned about how we as Christians are responding to this upcoming election. Oh, no, he's not going there. He's not going into politics, is he? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going there. And here's the reason why. I'm not picking on one side or the other. I see this on both sides. Christians on both sides are so afraid that the God they're supporting is not going to be elected. They're so afraid of that person that they are not supporting that if that person gets in power, that all hell will break loose in this country. Listen, I want you to know the application I just made for the first century applies to us as well. Listen, regardless of who wins the election in November, Jesus will still be on the throne in heaven. And regardless of what, who is appointed to the Supreme Court, Jesus is still the one who rules and reigns and nothing will happen to us except what Jesus allows to happen to us. So this provides great comfort to people in the 21st century America as it does in 1st century in the Roman Empire. And that's important. Listen, I don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't be informed. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't speak out. I mean, you should certainly exercise your, your First Amendment rights. But what I am saying is that this kind of fear that we have in the church is not appropriate for the people of God. Because our fear makes us crazy. 
And we tend to, to decrease the faults in our side and magnify the faults of the other side. We tend to interpret everything our folks do in the best positive light and everything they do in the worst possible light, and it's all driven by this fear. Listen, that, that type of fear is not appropriate in the people of God because Jesus is on his throne, he is not up for election, and he cannot be impeached. He will continue to reign regardless of what happens in November. Let's move on. The description here. John says that he sees one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now the first thing we often notice about people is what they are wearing. And our clothes can tell us a lot about a person. If I describe to you in our culture a woman who's wearing scrubs and a long white coat, and a stethoscope around her neck, you would say that that woman is a doctor. Yes. And if I described to you a man wearing a uniform, and he had a, a metal star or badge on his chest, you would say that man is a policeman or some kind of law enforcement officer. Well, in the first century, in the church, if you described to people a man standing among, light, among lampstands who is barefooted and wearing a long white robe and a gold sash, they would quickly conclude, just like you did, that that man is a, a priest. That's exactly right. But Jesus is not just pictured as any priest here. He's dressed like the high priest because of the specific language that is used here in the text. Now, what's the significance of that? Who was the high priest? Well, on Yom Kippur, it was the high priest alone who entered the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice of atonement on behalf of the people for their sin. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. It was the high priest alone who could come into God's presence to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And so the lesson being given, who is Jesus? If we see Jesus for who he is, then the lesson being given is that Jesus is our high priest. That Jesus alone cleanses from sin. That no other sacrifice for sin is sufficient. But it was Jesus who has once and for all time given himself as a sacrifice of atonement for our sin that keeps us and saves us from the wrath and the punishment of God. Listen, whatever else you may be facing today, whatever else happens in this country, even if all hell should break loose, your biggest problem has been solved. Our sin made us worthy of being punished by God. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For, so for whatever else we face, whether it's trouble in our nation, trouble in our family, whether it is trouble at work, trouble with our health, no matter what else we face, our biggest problem has been solved once and for all by the finished work of Christ on the cross. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. Let's rest in that. And if that is secure, then we can face anything else that may happen to us in this world. 
Let me move on with the description. Verse 14 says that he has white hair. What's the significance of that? Well, Daniel 7 describes the Ancient of Days as having white hair, but here the Son of Man has white hair. And the lesson is that the Son of Man shares the character and being of the Ancient of Days, of God. How is he like him? Well, white hair shows age. In this case, the Ancient of Days is eternal, so the Son of Man is eternal. And white hair commonly uh, associated with great wisdom. In this case, God knows all things, and the Son of Man knows all things. You see that as he continues on in verse 14, where he says, His eyes burn like a flame of fire. What's he saying there? Fire illuminates, right? Fire penetrates things. And he's saying that the eyes of Jesus burn through our facades. Those things we hold up for other people to see and those things we hide behind, that Jesus sees behind that and knows what's going on in our hearts. You see that play out in the text as we get to Revelation 2 next week. In Revelation 3, Jesus over and over again will say, I know your works. I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know your love, your faith, your service. To all these churches, Jesus knows what's going on there because of his wisdom exemplified by gray hair and his eyes of flaming fire that allows him to see all things. I wonder how you react to that. Jesus can see right through what we put up for other people to see. That Jesus sees us as we truly are. I'll be honest with you, that's kind of scary to me. Because I, I know my own heart. I know my own selfishness, my pride, my ambition. I know my self-centeredness that, that, that Mark prayed about this morning. I know my own impatience, that I want what I want, when I want it, and I think it's what's best, and then I resent it when I don't get that. And to know that Jesus sees that can be a little bit scary. But I want you to know it's also freeing. That Jesus sees all that yuckiness in my heart, yet he still loves me. Lee Taylor, thank you so much. We have sung about the love of God and his goodness to us all the day, his faithfulness to us, his goodness pursuing us, and all those things are true. And he does that knowing the worst about us. So I don't have to hide from him. I don't have to fake it with Jesus, because he already knows. And Jesus loves us so much that just as a fire burns away impurities, the love of Jesus burns that yuckiness from my heart that is ruining my life, that threatens to ruin this church, that threatens to ruin my family. And he burns those things out of our lives so that we're made to look more like him. The lesson is Jesus purifies those that he gazes upon. That's the symbol that we have. Let me just ask you, do you long for that? In your better moments, knowing the goodness and the grace of God, do you say, oh Lord, look at me, look into me. Shine your purifying gaze into me and burn away all that keeps me from coming to you and being more like you. It's been my prayer for you this week.
You may say, stop praying that, I'm feeling the fire, right? But God's using that fire to make us into the people that he would have us to be. Let me keep going. Verse 15 says, his feet are like burnished bronze. What's going on there? Well, the background is Daniel again. And in Daniel, the kingdoms of this world are represented by a statue whose feet are a mixture of iron and clay, which was a mixture that could not bear the weight of the statue. So the feet crumble, and if the feet crumble, then the whole statue falls over. But this is saying that his feet are like burnished bronze. It's saying that the feet of Jesus are strong, firm, steady feet. When it says that they've been tested by fire and tested by the furnace, it means that his kingdom, the foundation of his kingdom, has already been tested and strengthened by fire. That all other kingdoms of the world stand on shaky ground and will eventually pass away but that the kingdom of God will last forever. Again, good news for those being persecuted by the Roman Empire, who by the first century, Jesus has already seen the downfall of the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greek Empire. And so he's promising his people the kingdom of God will outlast the Roman Empire, and we know with the benefit of hindsight that it has. It did. God is faithful and true. And so we should have even more confidence in the 21st century. We shouldn't live in fear because the church has stood the test of time. It has stood the rise and fall of kingdoms and ideas. That the church has lasted through the dark ages. That the church has lasted through the enlightenment and modernity. The church will last through postmodern thought. The church has lasted through Darwinism, through Marxism, through apartheid. All these will rise and fall, but the kingdom of God stands forever. So if you're here this morning and you're skeptical, let me just say a word to you, okay? Listen, the greatest minds that have lived on the planet have grappled with Christianity, and it has not gone away. It has stood the test of time. And so it is worthy of you exploring as well. For those of us who are believers, you should have great assurance that we don't live in fear that the next new philosophy is going to overthrow Christianity and the church. It will not. So I'm not saying don't study. I'm saying do study. I'm saying have confidence. I'm saying Learn all that you can work, because all truth is God's truth. And that we shouldn't be afraid of any new idea that is out there. Because it'll either be consistent with the word of God, or it will pass away. So let's not live in fear as the people of God. Oh, it's so good, but i got to move on. Verse 15, his voice is like the roar of many waters. It's just saying that he speaks with the voice of God. That's uh, rooted in Ezra 1 and verse 24. Verse 16 says, from his mouth came a double-edged sword or a two-edged sword. Hebrews 4 says that God's word is a two-edged sword. So all that's saying is, is that God's word comes from his mouth. That's what the image means. So scripture tells us that God's word is powerful, that it changes things, that it's like a double-edged sword, that it, that it divides things, even down to bone and marrow. That God's word has the power to change people. That God's word has the power to change families. 
that God's word has the power to change communities and nations. So listen, what's the application? You want to change? You want to be a better person? You want to see this community change? You want to see this nation change? God's word is powerful and it changes people to be more like they were intended to be by the God who created them. And so if we want to see change in ourselves and in our families and the world around us, we've got to be in the word of God. It is powerful. Verse 16 says, his face is shining like the sun. The background for that's number six. Let me just say an aside here. Lee and I decided to put this in this morning. Just as an aside, I said the background's number six. All these symbols have their background in the Old Testament. You should be aware of that. Because if you're a, a pagan Roman and you intercept this book going to the church and you read it and you don't know the Old Testament, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you. So it seems pretty harmless. Because these images don't really make a whole lot of sense. A man with a sword uh, for a tongue, I mean, that's crazy. Eyes like fire, white hair, I mean, what's that about, right? But to the church, steeped in the scripture, all these things have specific meaning, and it's based on Daniel 7 or Ezra 1 or number 6. And so to understand Revelation, you need to understand the scripture as a whole. So listen, here's the application that Lee and I talked about. As we start talking about climate change, as we talk about changes in our nation, there are a lot of people who say, hey, listen, let's look at Revelation to get a better eschatology, a better view of the end things. Listen, anybody who's not rooting their interpretation of Revelation in the Scripture and the Scripture that has gone before it, they're not reading it the right way, okay? Because the Scripture is the key to understanding the book of Revelation, and I understand you may be uncomfortable. He just looks at eyes like fire and makes these conclusions, but it's based on what's gone on before. So be sure you read Revelation in that way. So here when it says his face is shining like the sun, if you know number six, you know that the greatest blessing of the Old Testament was that the face of God would shine upon his people. And here the risen and exalted Jesus turns all his purity towards his people, not to crush us, but to be gracious to us so that we too may shine with his light to the people around us. Oh, the description is rich. I wish I had more time, but let me move on. I'm going to finish with John's reaction in verses 17 and 18. Quickly, y'all got to listen faster, all right? John's reaction, beginning in verse 17, John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Oh, man. Seeing Jesus for who he really is is overwhelming to John. He just falls on his face like he's dead. Seeing Jesus for who he is should be overwhelming to us as well. Have you ever felt like just falling down on your face before Jesus? Have you ever been here in worship and it almost feels wrong just to sit here or to stand here and sing when the appropriate response would be just to fall down on our face before him? Let me tell you, one day it'll happen. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
and we will worship Jesus. And we will be so overwhelmed by his glory and honor and power and brilliance and warmth and mercy and grace that we can't help but fall on our faces before him. Given who Jesus is, it should happen more now. But I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't leave his friend John, who is probably the closest person in his earthly life to, right? He doesn't leave his friend John down there on the ground like he's dead. What does he do? Verse 17, he laid his right hand on me. Jesus reaches out and he touches John. Think about that. The Son of Man, the the central figure of all of history who rules all things, reaches down and he touches John. What's the lesson? It's telling us that Jesus does not remain aloof. That Jesus is not detached. That Jesus is not out there somewhere. He's close enough that he reaches down to his people and he touches us. We asked at the beginning of this sermon, where is Jesus in all this? And I want to answer that question very specifically because the text answers that question. Look at the last verse of this chapter. It says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So these lampstands are symbols for the churches. And where does verse 13 say the Son of Man is? And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Where is Jesus? (laughs) He's in the midst of his church. He's in the midst of his people. He's not up there looking down. He's not on the outside looking in. Jesus is right in the middle of us. The Son of Man is in our midst. Right in the middle of all we face. Right in the middle of all that's going on. It's where he told us he would be. Matthew 28 and verse 20. Right before he ascended into heaven, he told those folks, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen, I don't know what you're facing today. But I do know that if you are a follower of Jesus, I know Jesus is with you in the midst of it all. And you may have been overwhelmed by what you're facing to the extent that you fall on your face like you are dead. And I can tell you that Jesus has his hand on you and he speaks to you. Look what he says. Look at the text. Verse 17, he says, fear not. Jesus goes on to say, I have conquered everything. So you don't have to be afraid of anything. For some of us who are followers of Jesus, that gives us great comfort. Thank you for this reminder of who Jesus is. For some of us, we hear something and it makes us angry, right? What do you mean, don't be afraid? What do you mean, fear not? You don't know what I'm facing. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know. How can you say that to me? You don't know. And let me just say, that is true. I don't know. But Jesus knows. He knows because he knows all things. He knows because he sees all things. He knows because he left the perfection of heaven and came to earth as a man and lived among us. So that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. 
We have a high priest who's been tempted and tried in every way that we have yet was without sin. Jesus has faced our enemies. On the cross, Jesus faced all the powers that threatened to undo us. And for a time, death took Jesus captive and imprisoned him. But the text says Jesus busted out of the prison. But Jesus didn't just burst out of the prison of death. Jesus says here that he took the keys with him. What does that mean for us? What's the significance of him having the keys? What it means is that he has the keys to life and death itself. So when Jesus tells his church, fear not, we don't have to be afraid because the worst thing that can happen to us is those things that oppose us may kill us, but Jesus has the keys to life and death. And he frees us. What are you afraid of today? Afraid of what people think? Criticism? Rejection? Maybe you're afraid of financial hardship. Maybe you're afraid of bad health. Maybe you're afraid of losing control. Maybe you're afraid of being wrong. Maybe you're afraid of being misunderstood. Maybe you're afraid of being disrespected. Maybe you're afraid of, of pain or discomfort or you feel death itself. Listen, whatever it is that you fear, Jesus is bigger and stronger than all that you fear. And the only way to overcome our fears is by seeing Jesus as bigger and stronger than all that scares us. And the only way that happens is for us to see Jesus as he really is, to have him touch us by hearing his voice speak to us. Do you see Jesus for who he really is? Let's look again and again. Let's point each other. And do you doubt that seeing him is enough? Seeing Jesus was enough to change people and empires and this earth. What could seeing Jesus do in our church, in our community, in our families? What could he do in us? Let's gaze upon him and see. Let's pray and ask him to help us do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how rich it is. I pray that you would use your word in our lives. We know that it is powerful. And so we pray that you would use it to bring about the change that you would, as you taught us to pray, that you would have your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.